I want to do something splendid. Something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I think I shall write books. Louisa May Alcott Let me tell you the tale behind one of my favorite stories. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center at the Northeast Georgia History Center. You are listening to our museum's podcast, Then Again. Today, I have with me Jan Turnquist. I'm the executive director of Louise May Alcott's Orchard House. Uh, we are open seven days a week year round, and we see literally tens of thousands of people every single year. Over the years, we've seen many millions because it's been a house museum since 1911. I'm not old enough to have claimed that I was there since 1911, but I have been associated with Orchard House longer than my life before I started at Orchard House. I started guiding there when I was in my 20s, and it was just a delightful little part-time effort. I enjoyed it immensely, and Orchard House and I both have evolved over the years, and I became executive director in 1999 well past my 20s and have really loved the atmosphere of this house. It has grown over the years to be ever more, I guess I would say, steeped in that love and caring that I was just talking about. Our staff is so kind to each other. They really care about their visitors. I, When I first became director, I said, I want us always to have that attitude of graciousness. When anyone comes through the door, you greet them and it's, it's, you, feel, you feel how special they are just because they, they're visiting this wonderful house. The house itself is special. They're interested in it. Therefore, we've got a bond immediately. And then accommodate all the time, as much as you humanly can. If someone has a special need of any kind and, and we're capable of fulfilling it and it's not dangerous in any way to the collection or, or any of the people, then just do it, accommodate. And that philosophy, the, the staff has absorbed so well that I am proud of our staff beyond, beyond description. So I hope that your listeners will be able to come someday and experience that for themselves. Today, we are going to be taking a look at the life and works of Louisa May Alcott. You probably know her name to the long-enduring popularity of her novel, Little Women. But she was quite the prolific author in her lifetime, publishing 30 books and almost 300 other literary works. Louisa May Alcott was born on November 29, 1832, to Abigail May and Amos Branson Alcott. At the time of her birth, she had one elder sister whose name was Anna. The Alcotts would then go on to have two more daughters after Louisa, Elizabeth, and then May. The Alcotts raised their family around New England. Branson Alcott was a vegetarian, an abolitionist, an advocate for women's rights. Abigail May Alcott was a social worker, working primarily with the impoverished Irish immigrants in their area. Both of her parents, Branson and Abigail were part of the Transcendentalist movement, and it greatly influenced the family's upbringing. Well, Louise May Alcott's father, Amos Branson Alcott, was a very influential part of what we now call the Transcendentalist circle. 
he was very close friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson and Alcott together were great mentors of Henry David Thoreau. They were very close friends with Margaret Fuller, who edited The Dial, which was the Transcendentalist publication. So they were just immersed in all of this. And the Concord School of Philosophy and Literature, which Bronson Alcott started and still stands on the grounds of Orchard House, was also a gathering place for these individuals. So Louisa was really steeped in all of this. And the basic premise, the way I like to think of transcendentalism, and by the way, there's always a little bit of a joke. If you want to know the definition of transcendentalism and you have 10 transcendentalist thinkers in the room together, you will get 10 definitions. <laughs> and it's emblematic of the fact that it's a very individual movement. Individual thinking is key to being a transcendentalist, that how you feel and see things is important. And really anything that you think and want to try is good as long as you're not hurting anyone. That, to me, is the way I think of it, as far as the influence on Louisa May Alcott and, and her sisters. Because if you look at their lives, they did things that other young women would not dare do. Even writing was considered improper, improper, not ladylike. Now, I'm talking about writing for publication. Letter writing is fine, always, but for a proper lady. But if you're going to write for publication, that puts you in the public sphere. And your place is in the private sphere, the home. You do not want your thoughts and words going out for just anybody to read. That's not ladylike. That's improper. And besides that, many Victorian people thought, and, and certain doctors had said that they did the research and now could prove that brain work, such as writing, would destroy a woman's health. So it should not be permitted. Bronson Olcott and other transcendentalist thinkers would absolutely not agree with that. And you, you do what's right for you as long as you're not hurting anyone. That, that's sort of my personal way of thinking about transcendentalism. The family moved around a lot during Louise's childhood due to the family having financial hardships. Today, we would probably say that Branson was suffering from mental illness as he struggled to earn an income and keep a job and provide for his family, leaving their mother, Abigail, to provide for the family. The family always seemed to be poor or in debt, and poverty made it necessary for Alcott to go to work at an early age. She was a teacher, a seamstress, a governess, a domestic helper or maid, and of course, a writer. Her sisters, Anna and Elizabeth, also worked to support the family, they worked as seamstresses or as governesses and also took in laundry. Only the youngest of the Alcotts, May, was able to attend public school. This is very much the same arrangement that we see the four sisters in Little Women have, the March sisters. As they moved around due to these financial hardships, one of the places that the Alcotts found themselves living was in a utopian community called the Fruitlands. And they lived there from 1843 to 1844. There was plain living and high thinking at the Fruitlands. But after the Fruitlands experiment concluded, the family lived at a cottage called Hillside. And that was their last residence before the family moved into Orchard House. When the family had officially unpacked the last box in Orchard House in the spring of 1858, they had completed 
their 22nd move in just 30 years. But the house had quite the history before it became the Alcott's residence. It has a fascinating history going back to the mid-1600s. There was a gentleman who lived in that house in the 1600s named John Hoare. That's spelled H-O-A-R-E. He was a judge. He was a very independent thinker himself. All this is, this is way before people would even use the term transcendentalist, but I guess he would fit that mold in some ways because he really thought that nat the native peoples, especially the praying Indians, needed protection during a very dreadful time in New England history called King Philip's War or Metacomet's War. Metacomet was a chief who was trying to unite all Indian tribes that were in the area to finally wipe out the English, these colonists, get rid of them. They're just trouble. And that was the war. And it was utterly brutal on both sides. Terrible things happened. Twelve New England towns were burned to the ground. People were scalped, taken into slavery, and it was equally brutal and horrible going the other way, uh, the things that were being done to the Native peoples as well, including, this is a very horrible thing, the praying Indians. Now, a lot of colonists had worked hard to convert some of the Native people to Christianity, and they were called praying Indians, and they had little villages of praying Indians. During this war, however, suddenly these people had no place to go. Their own people didn't want them, didn't trust them because they had gone over to this white man's religion. And the colonists, the English, didn't trust them because, well, they're savages and who knows what they really believe, even if they claim to have converted to Christianity. So John Hoare, who was a friend to these people, petitioned the general court to allow his property to be a safe haven. And he got that permission. He built a workhouse for them. And while many other tribes, peoples from other areas in New England were sent to Deer Island where there was literally no shelter, no food, they just were sent there to die. The people he sheltered managed to survive the very bitterest, coldest months in protection. They had warmth, they had food, they had shelter. And even though eventually the sad end to this chapter is that a rogue fellow, he was basically like a, a land pirate. He didn't go out to the, sail the seas, but he, he was not an actual soldier or captain of anything. He had no commission. He was just on his own. He had rallied people with him, and they came and rousted these Native peoples out. John Hoare tried to block them. He was standing in the door of the workhouse. They just picked him up, moved him out, took these people to Deer Island. But because they had survived the worst part of the suffering, uh, they were stronger. And there are people today who still identify themselves as praying Indians who come and walk the grounds of Orchard House and give thanks to the shelter and the compassion that was shown by this man, John Hoare. And this was in the 1670s. In 1775, so we're now moving a century later into the 1700s, the very famous Red Coat March right past the door of what is now Orchard House in 1775 on the way to the North Bridge where the shot heard round the world was fired. And that was the beginning of the American Revolution. 
Timothy Hoare, who is the great, great grandson of John Hoare, still living in the house. It's still owned by the family. Uh, and his son, Timothy Jr., that would be the great, great, great grandson of John Hoare, both became Minutemen and fought to uh, establish our country. And then, of course, leading up to the time of the Alcotts, the house was owned by a farmer who lived next door, and he really didn't want the house. The house was old. It was in terrible condition by this time. He just had his own house next door, and he wanted the land, and he established an absolutely gorgeous apple orchard, which uh, Bronson Alcott loved. And Bronson Alcott really bought the land in 1857. They threw the, all the buildings, the main house and all the outbuildings, they were all thrown in for free because people expected them to tear these buildings down, use them for firewood, and build something decent. Bronson Alcott couldn't afford to do that. He was pretty handy with his hands, and he had good friends who were carpenters, and they cobbled together what we see now as Orchard House, and it was a wonderful home for them. As Louisa called it, it was their abiding place. That the wandering family is anchored at last, she said, and it is the home in which they live the longest. Louisa and her sister's education was largely under the direction of their father at home. For a time, they went to a school that their father ran called the Temple School, which was located in Boston. Sadly, the school failed. The school caused controversy by teaching children a more personalized view of Jesus Christ, and Branson Alcott also caused controversy when he enrolled a young African-American girl into his school, and many parents pulled their students out due to racial prejudices, causing the school to suffer financially and force its foreclosure. The remainder of Louise's education happened at home with her father and amongst their community of transcendentalist thinkers. Next door to the Orchard House was the home where Nathaniel Hawthorne and his family lived. So she was surrounded by writers and thinkers. And by the way, Julian Hawthorne, who was the son of Nathaniel Hawthorne, was absolutely enamored of May Alcott at one point. That's the youngest sister of the four girls. She's the one that's called Amy and Little Women. And the two families were neighbors and taking care of each other, but they were absolutely opposites politically. So that's an interesting mix, and it's sort of instructive, I think, for us today that sometimes people can be on opposite sides politically and still take care of each other and be kind. <laughs> but the, the ones who were simpatico with the Alcotts were people like Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller. These were people who were absolutely against slavery. Uh, they wanted to see freedom and for everyone. They, they wished for women to get the vote. And they were all active in these causes. Bronson Alcott was especially active that way, as was his wife. Mrs. Alcott was too. And Louisa was. So this family had a lot of support from their friends. And their friends were astonishing. When you think about those names that I just mentioned, and of course, there are other names you don't know as well. But one of the interesting ones that was just down the road was Ephraim Bull, who hybridized the Concord grape. And everyone knows the Concord grape today, but it started just down the road from the Alcutts, and he was one of their friends too. So it just seemed like they were always surrounded by people who were individuals, who were creative, 
who were working in, in ways that would last, the fruits of their labor would last through the years. And the Alcott said that they would be at home every Monday night. People could just drop in and visit, and they'd do a lot of performing. The girls would put on plays. They just had a wonderful time. Ralph Waldo Emerson's son, Edward, said no one had better fun than we did at the Alcott's house. Louisa May Alcott's writing career officially began in 1852 with the publication of her poem, Sunlight. It was her first poem to be published. It comes from its faraway home in the sky, and it gladdens each heart, it brightens each eye. Louisa published this poem under the pseudonym Flora Fairfield. Two years later, we see the publication of Louisa's first book, Flower Fables, and it was published when she was just 22 years old. Flower Fables is a collection of whimsical and fantasiful stories for children. The story was originally written for Ellen Emerson, the daughter of Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the Alcott's friends. This first book earned Louisa a whole $35, which is about the equivalent to $1,236 today. Also during this time, Louisa wrote more scandalous tales filled with shocking, dramatic, and rather violent plots. Some of these works are categorized as potboilers. A potboiler story is a genre of writing in which the main purpose of the author in creating these works is to pay bills and living expenses. In a sense, these stories were created to quote-unquote boil the author's pot or to provide for one's livelihood. Louisa wrote these sensational tales under the pen name A.M. Bernard, or simply anonymous. Human minds are more full of mysteries than any written book, and more changeable than the cloud shapes in the air. The Abbot's Ghost, a Christmas story. Alcott's first literary success and taste of fame, though, came when she published her novelette Hospital Sketches in 1863. Hospital Sketches was based on the experiences that Louisa had while she was a Civil War nurse in Washington, D.C. I long to be a man, but as I can't fight, I will content myself with working for those who can. Louisa served as a nurse in the Union Hospital, which was located in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and she was a nurse for six weeks in 1862 to 1863. She had originally intended to serve three months. They've come, they've come! Hurry up, ladies, you're wanted! Who have come, the rebels? Bless you, no, child. It's the wounded from Fredericksburg. Forty ambulances are at the door. Because that experience uh, of being a Civil War nurse was something that she wrote about. She wrote letters home, and the letters were often shared because that's what people did. The, the letters were not meant to be private just for her family, and everyone wanted news from the front. Now, these letters eventually were also published in the newspaper, and there was a man named James Redpath who wanted to publish these. He wanted to uh, coalesce them into a book form. And Louisa agreed, and that book was called Hospital Sketches. That was her first published writing 
that was in a style that she called reality writing. In other words, it was fiction, but it was based on reality. The reason it had to be called fiction is she changed names. The minute you change anything like that, it's fiction. So she didn't call herself Nurse Louisa May Alcott. She called herself Nurse Tribulation Periwinkle. And sometimes she'd have two different soldiers' stories, and they, it, it was just too long to put, you know, to talk about this soldier and then this soldier. She'd just put them together as if it all happened to one soldier. So that technique of basing something in your real experience but making the changes you need to to make it flow better or to just make it more understandable to your reader, that makes it fiction. And this was the first time she really tried to do that, the first time it was published, and it was so well received. Of course, Louisa was not able to complete her three-month term of service because she became deathly ill. She contracted typhus and pneumonia. Both could kill you. Her matron, who worked in the hospital with her, the woman who was in charge of nurses, had the same disease. As far as we know, it seemed like they were both equally sick, but the matron died and Louisa lived. I think her sturdy constitution helped her through. The medication they gave her did not help her. It was mercury. It was called mercurous chloride. It was called calomel. Uh, that is largely mercury. And when you ingest a lot of mercury, it does a lot of bad things to you. They thought, the medical doctors in the Union Army Hospital thought, that because it made it was an emetic, it made you lose the contents of your stomach. You lost teeth. You lost hair. You, it just, well, you must be losing the disease, too. This is why they thought it was a, a good medicine to give. In reality, of course, it just was, was poison. And she suffered the effects of it. She had pain. Apparently, mercury can settle into your joints and cause pain that, like rheumatism. And so she had this kind of pain to deal with for the rest of her life. It, it was very difficult to, to go on physically from this recovery, but it was a miracle that she recovered. And that uh, chapter where Josephine cuts off her hair for money for the family, Louisa knew what that felt like because she lost hair during this this episode of illness and the hair that was coming out, she had very long hair. When you have very long hair and it's falling out all over your pillow, it's just a mess. They feel it's better. Let's just cut it off, shave, whatever you have to do to stop that mess. So she says she went into caps like a grandma. Uh, once she kind of came to again, she was, she was rather delirious for quite a while with that illness. And it was, it was hard for her. It, she, her appearance had changed. Her physical being felt much worse. Uh, but she was determined to keep going, and she did. She writes all of her successful books after this illness. And it, was, uh, it, it informed her a lot, I think, about suffering and persevering as well. The literary work that Alcott published next was less than successful. It was a novel entitled Moods, which was published in 1865. In 1867, Louisa then accepted the editorship of Mary's Museum, a children's magazine. She also became a major contributor to the magazine. In 1867, the same year, the magazine's editor, Thomas Niles, asked her to write a book especially for girls. He was impressed with what she had done with hospital sketches. And he said, could you do the same thing, but write about your girlhood, write about your young years? Could you do that? 
Well, she thought she wouldn't. Why? Well, who would want to read about me and my sisters? I, I never really knew many girls. She was always playing with the boys. She was a tomboy. Why would anybody want to read about us, she thought. But on the other hand, they had what they all kind of laughingly called their all-caught sinking fund. They, they needed the money. So she thought she'd give it a try. And she wrote this book that we now see as the first half of Little Women. She wrote it very quickly, about six and a half weeks. She just sat there and dashed it off. She gave it to Thomas Niles. He thought, oh, I don't know about this, and maybe a little dull. And she kind of agreed with that. But he also allowed his niece to read it. The niece loved it, gave it to her friends. They all loved it. They were clamoring for it. So he decides to publish, and it is a huge success immediately. Then people want to know more about these young women. I know they will remember all I said to them, that they will be loving children to you, will do their duty faithfully, fight their bosom enemies bravely, and conquer themselves so beautifully that when I come back to them, I may be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women. Alcott's novel Little Women has since become legendary in a sense, but Little Women was actually published in two parts. Part one is called Little Women, or Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy after its four heroines, and it was published in 1868. Part two was published the following spring in 1869. Part two, or part second, is known as Good Wives. Today, they are generally published together and are just titled Little Women. But part two, Good Wives, follows these little women into adulthood. Now, Louisa thought Josephine, who was based upon herself, should remain a free spinster, paddle her own canoe. That's what Louisa was doing. But Thomas Niles said that would ruin the book. She's the main character. She really must marry. And everyone thought and hoped that Louisa, I should say Joe, would marry Laurie. And Louisa felt that that was just not going to work. She said it would be too perfect. Nothing in her life was ever that perfect. So she decided she would make a funny match for her Josephine, and she creates Professor Bear. She does write part two. For a time, those are two separate books, but then they are put together eventually by her publisher. But in other countries, they remain as two separate books. And some people read Little Women, but it's only the first half, and they don't know a lot of the outcome that people who read the whole thing, both parts. But both parts are mostly published in both parts now today. The story of Little Women is known to be semi-autobiographical, making it hard to parse out which tales are true from Louise's own life and which are fiction, or perhaps really they're just a blend of both. Many people know that Little Women is semi-autobiographical. I like to say that the heart of that book is what is true to the family. Details like names and um, giving her father the Civil War experience that really was Louisa's Civil War experience. Her father was too old to go. The fact that Louisa in real life never marries, Joe March marries. There are differences, but the heart, the trajectory of the story is really the part that's accurate to, their, to Louisa's life, to, to the family's life. And I think that it is a powerful thing 
to stand in the home where they lived and, and to stand in front of the very desk that Louise's father built for her in an era when it was considered improper for a woman to have a desk of her own, to stand there and realize that they were so groundbreaking that that gives you a sense of why Louise May Alcott endures today. I was privileged one time to meet Gloria Steinem, who said that Louisa May Alcott had deeply influenced Gloria Steinem's feminism. I think Louisa is a leader in women going forward and being themselves and not being subjugated as they were in Victorian times. The story, Little Women, was written and set at Orchard House, the Alcott's residence. And the story is about a family with four girls, just like the Alcott's had. Louisa's oldest sister, Anna, is the model for Meg in the novel. From a young age, Anna had a love for the stage and dreamed of becoming an actress. Louisa would write plays and the girls would perform for their friends and family. In 1858, Louisa and Anna actually helped found the Concord Dramatic Union. And it was in this drama club that Anna met John Bridge Pratt, the man Anna would marry and create her own family with. The two fell in love while acting opposite each other in a play that the dramatic union put on called The Loan of a Lover. John Bridge Pratt was the inspiration for the character John Brooke in the novel. This is one of the few characters whose name was not changed from their inspirational person. Anna and John were married in the parlor of Orchard House on May 23rd, 1860. Louisa used herself as inspiration for Joe March. Alcott preferred Lou to Louisa, just as Joe prefers Joe to Josephine. And Louisa was very much a tomboy growing up. She preferred to play rough and tumble games with the boys, and she enjoyed running and climbing trees and being active. The third sister, Elizabeth, was the muse for Beth March. Unlike the other sisters and their respective characters, Elizabeth and Beth share the same name. The family called her Beth, Betty, or Lizzie. Elizabeth and Beth, the character, share the most similarities. Almost as if Beth is an exact copy of Elizabeth, where there are some different interpretations between the other sisters. Beth is very much a preservation of Elizabeth. Elizabeth loved animals especially kittens. She enjoyed sewing, loved music and playing the piano. Elizabeth also, just like the character Beth, became sick with scarlet fever. It is believed that Elizabeth caught scarlet fever from an impoverished family that their mother Abigail had been caring for. Elizabeth survived the attack of scarlet fever, but she remained in a weakened state and she died two years later on March 14, 1858, which was a decade before the publication of Little Women. It is said that Elizabeth died of a wasting illness. And of course, Louisa's youngest sister, May, was the model for Amy. May's full name was Abigail May Alcott, as she was named after their mother, but of course she just went by May. Amy is actually just an anagram of May, has all the same letters. And May had a love of beauty. She's always admired elegant things. 
She also had an artistic talent for drawing and painting and filled the Alcott's home with her creations. May did go on to formally study art in Boston, but she dreamed of going to Europe, but the family couldn't afford it. It was actually not until after the publication and success of the novel Little Women that Louisa was able to fund her sister's travels to study art in London, Paris, and Rome. After the success of Little Women, Louisa went on to write a couple more stories that were in the same vein as Little Women that kind of complete the storyline, and that would be Little Men, which was published in 1871, and Joe's Boys, published in 1886. Of course, Louisa did write other novels after the publication of Little Women that were not related to the story of the March family. Alcott received a lot of attention and fame from her publications, but she really shied away from this attention. And when people would come knocking on the door to meet her, she would actually sometimes pretend that she was the servant of Louisa May Alcott. And um, Louisa wasn't here right now. You should come back later, maybe. Or, or maybe even uh, don't. <laughs> so Louisa, she, she was very shy and didn't want to engage with a lot of the public intention. Alcott also remained single throughout her life. Louisa claimed that she had never fallen in love with a man, saying in one interview, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body, because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. There are lots of different theories and stories behind if Louisa perhaps had a secret love or who was really the inspiration for the character Laurie, or maybe it was a combination of men or people who created this version of Laurie in her head. It, he's one of the harder ones to pinpoint exactly who influenced that character in Louisa's life. Louisa was indeed a spinster and enjoyed her spinsterhood and freedom that that provided. With her spinsterhood, she took care of her parents and also raised her niece, Lulu. May had died just a couple weeks after giving birth to her daughter, whom she named Louisa after her sister, but the family called her Lulu. And May made it very, very clear that she wanted her daughter to be raised by her aunt Louisa in the event of her death. So Louisa went on to care for Lulu for the next eight years until her own death in 1888. Louisa May Alcott was buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord, Massachusetts, along Authors Ridge, near Thoreau and Emerson. Love is the only thing that we can carry with us when we go, and it makes the end so easy. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. 
Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.